good to be in the uh, Lord's house on Christmas, is it not? Amen. Amen. So if you would turn with me in uh, your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 25, we'll be reading from the beginning of chapter, uh, the beginning of the chapter to verse 9. And while you're turning there, I want to say that I think it's really fitting that we're talking about the resurrection, which is traditionally sort of an Easter topic. We're talking about it on Christmas, and Christmas is when we celebrate Christ's birth. And it's not just a celebration of his coming, but also of the ultimate purpose of his coming, that he not only came to die for us, but to also swallow up sin and death with life. So, let's read. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done great things. Plans formed of old, wonderful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless will, is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises and comfort we receive from hearing these words about what you will do. Would you speak to our hearts today and would you fill us with the glories of your gospel? Speak through me now that we might hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and matchless name. Amen. So you might be thinking, Frank, where is the resurrection? This is supposed to be the promise of his resurrection. And this all sort of sounds more second coming-ish, you know, end timesy. Well, let me answer your question with an il illustration that will hopefully not be too nerdy, okay? So have you ever looked at a massive building and wondered about the engineering behind its foundation? Most of us aren't thinking about the foundation when we're looking at this marvelous building. We're, we're too busy just sort of in wonder at just how big, how tall, how enormous this building is. But sort of take a moment to think about it. Think about like the Hoover Dam or the Empire State Building or the Eiffel Tower or, you know, just any other enormous building that you can think of. Okay. Think about how much that structure must weigh. And think about what it might be like to hold up that structure. I mean, 
those of you that have ever been at the bottom, in the middle of a human pyramid, you know what it feels like to be a foundation. You feel like you're getting squashed, there's too many people, you just want them off, take the picture, please let it stop, right? You know, it's a wonder that things just don't splinter, crack, break, and just buckle under the weight of the, the structure that you know, they're trying to hold up. Even concrete and bedrock have their limits. And I suspect one of the reasons why some of the megastructures that people have dreamed up, um, I, I, I suspect that one of the reasons why some of the megastructures that people have dreamed up aren't actually possible. No, from a materials and engineering standpoint, the Death Star is just not possible, right? Okay, they would need materials far stronger and far more, more resilient than the ones that we have now uh, that, uh, to support the weight and to deal with the magnitudes of stress placed upon the structure. So now think about our salvation, right? Think about the glorious thing that the house that the Lord is preparing, just think about how glorious that is. You know, we sometimes skip over the foundational event of our salvation because we are wrapped up in the glory of the cross and what we have in Christ. You know, I, I, I tell um, our youth that when we talk about the gospel, I, wanna, I want them to think of three things. I want them to think about Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and our union with him. And so much of the time, we think about the glory of the cross and what the Lord has paid for us at the cross. And then we skip straight to, wow, we have great things in Christ. We have justification, we have sanctification, we have, you know, all the promises of heaven and glory and all of that, but we forget that there's that step in the middle, the resurrection. And so what is the foundation of all of our hope in Christ? Well, it's the resurrection. And what we see in this passage is a de description of resurrection life, the life that the resurrection of Jesus wins for us that first Easter morning. And so it all rests on the resurrection. And so to give us a roadmap of where we're going, we're going to see two things that the resurrection does. It vindicates and it restores. We'll be pulling from verses 6 through 9 first, and then we'll get to uh, verses 1 through 5 for our application. So, the resurrection vindicates. When we talk about the resurrection, it's absolutely essential to our salvation for a number of reasons, but the one that I want to highlight is this sort of idea of vindication, this doctrine of vindication. The resurrection of Jesus was his vindication. Well, what does that mean? Okay, It means that the resurrection is proof that Jesus was absolutely perfect. R.C. Sproul wrote in one of the articles um, that he writes for Ligonier Ministries, the resurrection is the act by which the Father universally vindicates the authenticity of his Son. In this sense, Christ is justified before the whole world by his resurrection. So Christ is declared righteous in his resurrection, declared to have fulfilled the demands of perfection from a holy God. We could also think of it from a sort of a negative angle. Without resurrection, that would mean that Christ's death was insufficient to cover over death. Death cannot be overcome if its power is binding on our Savior. It's not just that he needs to pay the price for our sin. He needs to be more than our sin. He needs to be able to swallow death as it is spoken of at the beginning of verse 8. 
But it's not just Jesus who is vindicated. Isaiah wants to be vindicated too. In verses 4 and 5, Isaiah describes God as a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. God needs to be a stronghold precisely because his people are persecuted, caught up in the midst of the storm. And Isaiah and his faithful have been ridiculed scorned for their faithful, patient waiting and endurance. And so we get Isaiah's comeback in verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This, behold, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Can you hear the I told you so? Right? There's an implied challenge and dig to those who do not believe, to those who oppressed and persecuted. You thought you were so smart and we were so dumb to, to trust in the Lord. Well, we waited on his salvation and this is it. The day of the Lord is his salvation. You, scoffers, persecutors, oppressors, you get chapter 24, which is all about judgment and wrath. And I'll get chapter 25, which is all about the wonder and glory that we will have in him. If we look back at the text, we see the crow that uh, the enemies of God will have to eat. Verses 2 and 3 acknowledge that even the most ardent deniers of God will be forced to glorify God and to fear him. The most powerful nations will be powerless, helpless before the authority and power of God. And so we see Isaiah's sure hope that he will be vindicated, and that this prophecy will be fulfilled. But what good is being proved right and righteous if nothing changes? At its core, the resurrection is about changing. It's about moving from death to life, from what was once true to what is now true. It's about being restored to the way things ought to be. And so that brings us to the second thing that the resurrection does. It restores. And this is why we get this sort of second coming feel. Revelation 7, uh, 19, and 21 all pulled directly from this passage. And now, it is pro- and now is probably as good a time as any to sort of take a quick sidebar, a quick tangent to understand Isaiah's view of the coming, of the coming day of the Lord. You know, when we, when we read of these passages, we sort of see both the second coming and Christ's first coming sort of lumped together. And it doesn't unfold exactly the way that Isaiah thinks it will unfold. He sort of sees it as one just sort of day of the Lord, okay? But when when we we see that it hasn't unfolded that way, um, scholars sometimes describe sort of the way that Isaiah views the eschatology as sort of having a compact eschatology. Everything sort of mashed together. But I think that doesn't really quite explain what's going on. I think if we use the illustration of a constellation, it might be helpful for us. Okay? When we look at the stars and we see the constellations, all the stars sort of seem to be all on one plane. Right? They all seem to be the same distance from us, but in reality, those stars are further away, and some are closer. And that is the way it works with uh, the, the day of the Lord. Some aspects of the day of the Lord come sooner, and some come later. Some of them are both sooner and later in a sort of classic Pauline epistle sort of understanding of the already not yet. 
And it is in this mix of present and future fulfillment that the church finds itself. And so when we look at the restoration that the resurrection brings, many of the aspects that Isaiah sees have both present and future fulfillment. So, what does the resurrection restore? Five things, five quick things from this passage. First, in verse 6, we get a description of a festal meal that makes us think about sort of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. It also makes us think about the institution of the Lord's Supper. In these two feasts, we have a meal that celebrates restored communion with the Lord. Have you ever wondered why we tend to do our our fellowshipping over a meal or over coffee? There's a profound relational aspect to sitting down and breaking bread with people. And since the fall, we haven't enjoyed this kind of intimacy with God because of our sin. But because of Christ's resurrection, a way way has been opened up for us to once again enjoy fellowship and relationship with the Lord. It is in our union with Christ that we have been made one with the Lord, and a feast for the ages will celebrate that restoration. And so the resurrection restores our relationship with God. Well, we also see that it restores our sight. Isaiah wrote in verse 7 that there was a veil covering over the whole world. If we are to enjoy a relationship with God, we have to remove all the hindrances that prevent us from fully enjoying uh, that relationship. And we have to remove the darkness that comes from ignorance, that comes from suffering, that comes from sin. In Ephesians 4, 18, Paul points out that those that are not in Christ are blind to him due to the hardness of their heart from sin. Sin doesn't only separate us from God. It corrupts us too. It keeps us from seeing him clearly and, to, and, so to fully, and so to fully enjoy the relationship that we see in verse 6. We have to rid ourselves of the sin that blinds us in verse 7. And this leads us to the third thing that the resurrection restores, namely eternal life. At the beginning of verse 8, uh, Isaiah clearly identifies the veil that is over the whole world as death. Death hangs over man because death is the wages of sin. It is profoundly unnatural. We were not made to die, and death is a result of the fall, and so death and sin go hand in hand. One cannot destroy, uh, you cannot destroy one without destroying the other. And so Christ's resurrection restores to us a life without death, a life eternal. And the fourth thing that the resurrection restores is our experience. This life is full of suffering. Holidays are especially hard for people who have lost loved ones. You really can't live in this world without some sort of suffering. It's part of the curse. It's part of the fall. But there is a restoration that happens at the resurrection. There is a newness of life and a promise made to us here in Isaiah 25. The Lord himself will be the one to wipe away the tears from our eyes. There will be no more reason to cry, no more pain, for the Lord himself will set all things right. What comfort there is in this promise. It's one of those things that is both already and not yet. Suffering today doesn't quite have the sting that it used to when we put it in in an eternal perspective because of the future promises that we have. 
the last thing that the resurrection restores is our relationship to one another. If you look through sort of the, the history of man, okay, as told in the Bible, the big conflicts are between God's people and the people that rebel against the Lord. Think about sort of Cain, Abel, Noah, and the scoffers, Esther, and Haman, Joshua, and the Canaanites, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. And it's really sort of God's people versus the rebels. And at the end of verse 8 promises that the reproach his people suffer at the hands of these rebels will be taken away from all the earth. The reason, the reason, the vindication that we spoke of earlier. We have come at last to Isaiah's vindication, but it is far more glorious than even he could possibly imagine because we will not only be justified in a relational sense, that the people that are against us will know and understand who the Lord is, but we will also be physically justified. And this is the thing that I'm probably, uh, one of the things I'm most excited about, about the resurrection. We will be clothed in Christ's righteousness so that what is true of us in our inner man will be presented in our outer man. What a thing to look forward to, to finally be conformed fully to the image of the Son, to finally be righteous, completely righteous. And there will be no question of our place with God. The vindication that God pronounced at the resurrection, the justification before the whole world that Jesus was his Son, will be in our very flesh. And so people who scoff will look at us and they will see Jesus' righteousness in our very flesh and they will not be able to deny that he is Lord. And we will display for all to see the righteousness of Christ, which is ours, through our union with him. And these promises are awesome. It's great to, it's great to, to spend time thinking about the wonder and the weight of glory that is being prepared for us in the future. But if most of you are like me, which I think you are, I, we tend to get caught up in the here and now, right? And Isaiah is mindful of this. And he actually starts with the present value of these future promises in verses 1 through 5. He stood in his present knowing the wondrous things that the Lord has done on behalf of his people. He would have known the stories of their deliverance from Egypt, of the Lord fighting on their behalf to give them the promised land, and of the covenant that the Lord made with David to make, him, uh, make for him an everlasting throne. He has clear evidence that the Lord was faithful in the past, and he had promises for the future and the prophecies that he was writing down. And so for Isaiah, the present value of God's word to him was that it provided a refuge for him in the midst of the storm. Look again to verse 4 and 5. Isaiah gives the Lord praise because he was there when he needed it. He was there when he needed him. But it wasn't just that God was present. God was effective too. What does a storm do against the sturdy, well-built wall? Well, nothing. Just sort of beats against it and breaks and it doesn't do anything. What can the heat of the day do when the, crowd, uh, when the cloud covers the ground and provides shade? Well, nothing. It gets cooler. That's just the way it works. Okay? And so here is the present value of Isaiah 25 for us. 
We too stand like Isaiah did. We too have seen the Lord be faithful to his people. We too have future promises of glory to give us a perspective on our suffering. But we are different. We see far more clearly the wonder of God's plans formed of old. Faithful and sure. We know the one who fulfilled the promises of this passage, and it is Jesus. We have a far greater comfort, not just because we know the promised resurrection, but because we have experienced it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 through 11, that we are always carrying in in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Christ might be manifested in our bodies. We have Christ's resurrection in our inner man. The promises of the future are fulfilled in our present experiences of being united to Christ through the fellowship of his Holy Spirit. So at Christmas time, we celebrate Christ's coming. We celebrate the wonder of his incarnation, the incomprehensible plan of, from of old to be one of us in order to take on the penalty of sin for us. But Christmas has no meaning without Easter. It is glorious news that the Christ has risen from the dead, that the death had no power over him. That's what makes Christmas so sweet. In resurrection, Christ has led the way for us. Just as we have died with him, we expect to be raised with him in newness of life. He is not just the propitiation for our sins, but he is also the firstborn from among the dead. And he has swallowed up death in his resurrection. And so we say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Father God, it is, it is good to be in your house today. It is good to marvel at the wonder of your coming, but it is far better to rejoice in Jesus' resurrection, that he is risen, he is risen indeed. Would your resurrection cause us to exalt you and praise your name? Thank you for your gracious work for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.